This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Thanks, Dewey. Today we're talking with Terry Johnson, pastor of Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, and the author of many books, among which are Leading in Worship, Reformed Worship, and The Family Worship Book. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Terry. Welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. Tell us, first of all, uh, where are you pastoring? Uh, tell us about your congregation. You are in a historic American Presbyterian congregation. Right. Uh, its its name is an oxymoron. It's the Independent Presbyterian Church. It was founded in 1755 in Savannah. It's been independent from the very beginning and has remained such through the decades, through the centuries. Describe the architecture for those who haven't seen it. It's colonial style with a huge 180-ton steeple that rises 200 feet up into the air. It's a beautiful granite exterior uh, with solid mahogany pews and pulpit in the interior. It's one of the most beautiful houses of worship, uh, Protestant houses of worship, I would say, in North America. What's the significance of the kind of pulpit that Independent Press has? Well, they call it a two-story pulpit. It's large. It's the architectural focal point of the interior. When you come in, that's where your eyes go, which I would say is as it should be. Why why is that? Well, because of the centrality of the word. I think that you design your interiors according to your theology, even as you worship according to your theology. And if if you were to compare our interior, uh, say, with uh, a very beautiful Roman Catholic cathedral that's a couple blocks away, St. John the Baptist, you would walk through their front doors and you would see immediately that at the, the uh, visual focal point, there's an altar. Well, of course there is. That's the central act of their worship. It's They gather around the altar for the sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, so that's consistent with their theology, uh, whereas we uh, would gather around the Word of God. What's the difference, though? between Joel Osteen standing either without any sort of pulpit or lectern or maybe a plexiglass lectern and a great oaken two-story pulpit. You know, some people would say, well, that's just culture and you've raised culture over principle and uh, you've raised circumstance over element. I would argue exactly the opposite. I would say that uh, the wandering preacher on a platform or a stage attracts undue attention to himself. Uh, We want to depersonalize, I think. I think that we ought to want to depersonalize the minister in order to give our undivided attention and undistracted attention to the message of the gospel itself. And I think that when you put ministers on platforms and stages and have him walking around, that it's just too much about him. You know, he's uh, he's top banana and God's getting second billing. Whereas when you have a, a pulpit and uh, somewhat restricting the movement of the minister, better yet, I would say, put him in a robe so that you're not, again, you're, you're, you're depersonalizing him to a degree that represent the office, the calling. And I think that it helps the congregation to give its attention to the word itself and not to the, the messenger. What's the significance of wearing a robe? Some people would look at that and say, well, that's sacerdotalism. You, you've turned the minister into a priest. What, what's wrong with that? No, I think it's a recognition of office, and I think that for the most part, it's just an attempt to eliminate distractions, as I think is the case with everything 
uh, with respect to the interior of the church. You want to eliminate distractions. You don't want symbols. You don't want pictures. You don't want you don't want anything that's going to grab the attention of the people. You want them focused on the worship of God. You want them listening without distraction to the Word of God. There, there are certain items that uh, we could discuss that are matters of Christian liberty. I, I would classify a lot of these as wisdom issues. Do you want people distracted? Do you want them giving their undivided attention to God's Word? Then, then you just eliminate the things that distract. You've written about worship at great length in uh, multiple volumes. What is worship? Well, you know, if you start with the English word, it's uh, to attribute worth. It's, it's the praise and adoration of God. It's humbling ourselves and giving Him the the honor of which he is worthy, and we do th- do so through prayer, through sung praise, uh, through listening to his word as it's read and as it's preached, and through um, the administration of the sacraments. So there are basically five elements. Through those five key elements, we honor, we give our honor and praise and adoration to God. Is there a pattern of worship in Scripture, and is that pattern reflected, or how is it reflected in the Reformed approach to worship? I think there is a pattern, uh, not, not in great detail, but I think that there is a flow, a logic to worship from Genesis to Revelation. In other words, there is a way to approach God. We don't just burst into His presence. We don't just go with a, la- a list of gimmies from our wish list. There's a way to approach God. He is a holy God, and so there is a a way of approach. I think the approach is to begin with uh, the adoration of God and having contemplated him and seen a vision of him in our praise, as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. We then become keenly aware of our own sin, and uh, woe is me, we'll cry out with Isaiah, uh, so that praise of God leads to the confession of sin, leads to the thankful reception of the promises of the gospel, then leads to the Christian life and seeking grace from God through the appointed means of the word, prayer, and sacraments. So there is a, there is a basic approach. And I think you see this in the uh, popular aids worship like ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, mm-hmm. or the three Ps, Praise, Pardon, Petition. I think you see it in the Lord's Prayer. I think you see it in uh, Philippians 4, 6. Uh, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests uh, be made known to God. I think that it's the base. I think it's the pattern of the sacrificial system. So there's, there's a basis in the nature of things and in the history of redemption and in Scripture for the patterns of worship in historic Reformed liturgies. Oh, I think so. And I think that's why there's a consistency within those uh, liturgies. Uh, You know, Reformed Protestants came to certain convictions about the nature of God and then the nature of God's self-revelation, in other words, Scripture, uh, convictions about uh, how we are justified, convictions about grace, convictions about our chief end and aim. And these gave shape to the way that God was to be worshipped. Worship arises out of theological, biblical convictions. And so if you share the convictions, it's going to be inevitable over time that you're going to share a basic pattern. And I think that's what you've seen with the early Reformed liturgies that were, um, that were developed and, and which come to the culmination in the Genevan liturgy of, of 1542. Calvin's is really d- the definitive Reformed liturgy. Is it fair to say, do you think it's right that uh, there's a basic biblical pattern of worship wherein God speaks and his people respond? Um, yes, I think that's another way to put it. I think that's right. I think the initiative in redemption and the initiative in worship is always with God. He calls, 
uh, we respond. He speaks, we listen. He commands, we obey. Some people have talked about the regulative principle of worship. What, what is that? What does it mean and why is it significant? Well, there's going to be different answers to that from different people. I, I would answer that it just means that you worship according to Scripture. I don't know if we're served well by that term or if it just confuses people. I believe in it. I've written in defense of it. But I do think that basically what we're talking about is that when we worship God, we do so according to his word. It's not for us to invent forms of worship. It's not for us to put our heads together and try to find something that's neat, that people will enjoy, or that might entertain people or excite them. What we do in worship is that which God himself has ordained. I think that's the way it was from the very beginning. You say that very matter-of-factly, but what you're, the principle you're enunciating, you know, which is embodied, for example, in Westminster Confession, Chapter 21, and Heidelberg Catechism, Question 96, that's actually a fairly radical principle. I mean, if you went into a typical evangelical congregation or even many Reformed congregations and said to them, listen, there's going to be some changes around here, and one of them is we're only going to worship God in the way that he has revealed himself as being willing to be worshiped. That would not be well-received in a lot of places. I suspect that most American Protestants today have more of the Lutheran or Anglican view, which is if we were to caricature, it would be that if it's not forbidden, it's permitted. Uh, The reform view, again, if we were simplifying here, but it would be that if it's not, you know, enjoined positively, then it's forbidden. We only do what God says. I think they take the latter view. And and so they're not much concerned. They're very concerned that they not do something that is in violation of Scripture. You know, you don't want to offer human sacrifices or something like that. Well, I think not unless th- you can really fill the pews. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I think, think average American Christian thinks there's a lot of room for creativity. Whereas I think our forefathers in Reformed Protestantism, and when he talked very broadly about Reformed Protestantism, I would throw in the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists. You know, they are branches out of Reformed Protestantism. I think prior to the late 19th century, there was pretty significant agreement on this amongst us that we would limit ourselves in worship to that which God himself positively enjoins in his word. And this was not a place for us to start being creative and and thinking of, you know, something new and innovative to do. This was not where we're going to innovate. We're going to do what God says. Or to be self-expressive, right? I mean, what happens in Scripture to people who decide to express themselves in worship? thinking about Cain. That didn't go well. Uh, I'm thinking about calves at Bethel and Dan. Those didn't go well. I'm thinking about the, the cart in which the ark was carried and, and Uzzah. You know, that didn't go well. Those are the kinds of places that traditionally Reformed people have gone to say, listen, here are at least three clear cases where you see God expressing his displeasure with human creativity in worship. Right. I see what you're saying. I, um, I would say that there's of course, there's self-expression in that we give expression as we throughout the Psalms to our questions and our fears and our anxieties, as well as uh, rejoicing. And sure, there's the whole range of emotions that are to be expressed in our worship. But this is not the realm in which we are to get Re- creative and innovative or realize ourselves. Yeah, as though th- this were an opportunity to find ourselves by uh, expressing ourselves in ways that God hasn't commanded or enjoined. What's happening from your point of view, where you are, and and you travel widely and you speak in a lot of places, what do you see happening, first of all, broadly in evangelical worship? What, What are the patterns that you're noticing? Oh, I think we're almost completely given over to entertainment. And I think we're also given over to segregated worship. 
I think it's ironic that a generation ago, we had racially segregated churches, and I guess to a degree we still have that. But it's not by compulsion, it's not by law, it's by habit and by choice that that continues. But we look scornfully and rightfully so at the generations that perpetuated, uh, mandated uh, racial segregation. But today, we by default are mandating a generational segregation. Um, so one, we're given over to entertainment. Two, the entertainment is specifically targeting the young and shouts in unmistakable ma- uh, language that older people are not welcome. Almost all the growing churches are targeting the young And these churches scarcely have an individual over 40 years old in them. Now, I I don't think that can be squared with apostolic Christianity in all, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, and there's neither young nor old. That's why in the apostles' uh, letters, he's addressing young people and parents and older people, younger women, older women. They're all in the same congregation. We're not being segregated by choice. And I I think the absurd extent to which this has been taken can be seen in the cowboy churches Mm. and for your listeners who don't know, yes, there are cowboy churches. Um, <laughs> now, this the, niche niche marketing of churches. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, they've rewritten the Ten Commandments. Uh, one that stands out is the Fifth Commandment, be kind to your ma and your pa. That's, <laughs> this is done uh, – This now, this is with a straight face. You're laughing, yeah. but this well, was reported in USA Today, and then uh, a number of weeks later, it was re-reported in Christianity Today yeah. with a straight face. face without any critical comment, as though this were wonderful because we're reaching cowboys. And uh, they had a feeding trough there as a baptismal font, and at the end of the service, they were singing happy trails to you. Roy Rogers would have been happy. I'm not sure that the apostles and Jesus are happy about this. And the latest development in the cowboy churches is now there are two kinds of cowboy churches. You have urban cowboys, (laughs) yes, and rural cowboys. You you see the, the, the logic of this. I come from cowboy people, and so I, I didn't know that. I don't think they know that this was going on. So you see, I would call it the iPodization of worship. Yeah, and the iPod is really the perfect invention for this generation. And once churchmen get a hold of it, I can dial up exactly the worship music that expresses my thoughts and my feelings at that moment, all by myself. And I can dial up the sermon I want, so that uh, for me to have a a positive experience of God, all I need to do is sit at home with my iPod. Yeah. Where is there any logical principle today being expressed in the broadly evangelical world that will prevent that from happening? And not that we don't want people listening to their iPods or listening to podcasts like Office Hours. That's, no. That's a whole other thing. We're not trying to augment or, or not trying to uh, replace anybody's worship experience. Well, I think it, you need to note that technology can be used for good or ill, and that's always the case. There's, al- there's always the positive that comes through advancing technology, but it always comes at a price, and we should not be naive about the price that's paid for the new form of technology. When we come back, we're going to talk to Terry about why people are so drawn to entertainment in worship. We're going to try to bring this home a little bit closer to Reformed congregations as well, and we'll talk about that when we come back right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, Jay Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. 
Carrie, why are people so drawn to entertainment? That's one of the two things, the two great trends that you said that you're seeing in contemporary evangelical worship. Because I enjoy it. Because it's a pleasant experience for me. I would say it, it's like the, what the economists say, good money chases out bad money. I think, or rather the other way bad around, money bad chases money chases out good money. Uh, I think that's with worship. I think if, if you will offer somebody something that's exciting, I mean, reading the Bible, prayers, how, how exciting is prayer? How exciting is scripture reading? How exciting is careful exposition with exhortation? I think it's exciting. I mean, I love it. I love the great hymns that are full of theological language. And, and the Psalms. Um, yes, and, and one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had was uh, the Scripture reading from Isaiah uh, in church where there was, it was read without comment, and I'd never heard, really been in a church that had done that. Mm-hmm. Singing the Psalms, um, I think, to the spiritually minded, there's nothing, there isn't anything more moving and powerful than that. But I, th- I think if you're talking about people generally, I think those are kind of boring things to do. And if you've got a band and performers and skits and drama and dance and lights flashing and big screens up Videos, front yeah. and things flashing all the time, you know, it's very visually stimulating. It's uh, fun. It's exciting. It's... So I think that that catches on. I think that uh, that appeals to people. And I think the people who are doing it are doing it be- for pragmatic reasons. It works. Mm-hmm. It brings in a crowd. And there's a long history of that in American religion. I mean, going back to revivals at least to the 19th century, if not in some ways to the 18th century. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I think that there's a way to read American church history that shows the pragmatic streak has been a dominant reality for a long, long time. Uh, The repackaging of the gospel to make it palatable to a popular audience that's been going on for a long time, and, and, you know, the debts are coming due now. We're starting mm-hmm. to pay for it. I think the gospel and the format in which the gospel is being preached, that is the worship service, has, has been so emptied of content that it's beginning to beg the question as to why I should even come. And, um, you know, there's a book that's come out just recently called Quitting Church in which um, it's documented that there are scores of people who are just dropping out of church, who are professing believers, and who continue to cultivate a small group or personal relationship with God in Christ, but who don't see the relevance of the church. And I don't blame them for not seeing the relevance of the church when they go and their souls aren't being fed, there's just um, one form of entertainment after another. Which is the same phenomenon that the uh, mainline liberal churches experienced in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. That same phenomenon of people dropping out because they don't see the point of it anymore is now happening in ostensibly evangelical congregations. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that the probably, uh, again, to caricature, but Probably the main line was basically saying, be nice, be good. Yeah, which is what the evangelicals are saying now. They're saying it, and if anything, it's, you know, it's debased further, at least in one respect, because it's come, come let me entertain you while I tell you to be nice and be good. So my whole selfish, self-centered streak there is getting reinforced by the church. The church is feeding this uh, self-absorption. Narcissism. yes. Exactly. It's feeding that rather than counteracting it. So if it um, if it makes me feel better and I'm more self-actualized by staying home and I get more out of reading my Bible in my quiet time than I do from the service at the church where there's a big praise band up front singing things I don't know and I'm just listening and the Bible isn't being read and there's hardly any prayer and I don't think I'm being unfair. I think that if you go to many of the large churches today, just 
take a stopwatch. How much scripture is read? How much time is given to scripture reading? How much time is given to prayer? prayer I think yeah. you'll find there is almost maybe the verse before the sermon, maybe one verse and virtually no time being given to prayer. Now, now take, for example, we have a historic Reformed worship service. We have six basic prayers. Sometimes they're combined, but there are at least, in every service, there are six basic types of prayer being expressed. We have a prayer of praise, prayer of confession of sin, prayer of thanksgiving, prayers of intercession, a prayer of illumination, and a benedictory prayer at the end. Those are six prayers. Now, that takes up a considerable part of our time. Mm. And the apostle says we're to be devoted to prayer. Now, how can you gather as a Christian community and not read the Bible mm. and not pray? What, what exactly is the nature of the service in which the Christian community is gathering if there's no prayer? I don't care if you're gathering for a business meeting. Yeah. You're not going to pray, and you're not going to have Scripture as a part of the service. It just doesn't uh, make any sense, and I, I fear we're going to... I'm afraid what we see today in our country is just a house of cards hmm. being built around personalities that... And if persecution or affliction comes, or even if we just become more and more prosperous, I think the house of cards will collapse. Hmm. It's easy to look around and see the, you know, the weirdness and the weaknesses of broad evangelicalism. Now, what's happening within the Reformed churches? Where are we on the scale of, say, good to bad, or where, where we ought to be as opposed to where we are? Well, I think that, uh, I think that we tend to swing between two extremes. Uh, the pendulum, regrettably, doesn't stop in the happy, solid, orthodox, sound middle. I think on the one hand, the left wing, you might say, we're unduly influenced by the world and by the worldly church. And so we're mimicking the church growth methodology, the generational division, the forms of entertainment, the praise band, the contemporary music, everything that's being done in the broader evangelical world. And then on, then the pendulum is swinging to another extreme where you've got some churches, not very many, but some that are virtually indistinguishable from an Episcopal church, where it's the whole thing is uh, liturgical. I think the balance is where historic Reformed worship always has been, where there are a few fixed forms that give weight and substance to the church. You might use the creed, the Lord's Prayer, you know, the, the doxology, the Gloria Patri, and such, the Ten Commandments. They might all have a, a regular liturgical role that anchors the service, but that there is still significant time and energy being given to the preaching, expository preaching, and to studied prayer, prayer into which there is a lot of thought, but where the preacher is not limited to a written prayer and where he's able to pray broadly and passionately for the needs of the church. One of the things, Terry, that you have mentioned earlier— is the importance of prayer and scripture reading and uh, sacraments and preaching. These are things that are traditionally or historically called in Reformed worship the means of grace. What are the means of grace, and, and why are they important for individual personal spirituality or piety and then corporate piety? Uh, well, the question being addressed by the, the means of grace is how do we get the benefit of what Jesus did long ago and far away? All right, it's 2,000 years ago. Mm. It's across an ocean and a sea <laughs> there at the edge of the Mediterranean world. How does the benefit of what Jesus did on the cross then get to me here in the present now? And the answer of the Reformed faith and most of Christianity has been through the Word. It's the Holy Spirit using the Word. And so Reformed Protestants have wanted to give, as I mentioned earlier, undistracted 
attention, devotion to the Word. And so there's a great simplicity to Reformed worship. We read the Word. We preach the Word. We sing the Word. That's why we sing psalms. Mm. When we pray, we go to the Bible to find out how to pray. Don't the disciples say, Lord, teach me to pray? Uh, So when we pray, we find the praise in Scripture and the confessions, uh, expressions of confession and thanksgiving and the supplications. uh, We we get the agenda for which we should be praying in our supplications in Scripture and so forth. And then the sacraments, going all the way back to Augustine, have been understood as visible words. Mm. So again, it's the word. And this is clearly what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. Faith, uh, the Apostle Paul, Romans 10, 17, says, comes by hearing the word of Christ. Uh, Peter says, we grow by the pure milk of the word. Peter says, we are born again by the living and abiding word. So the agency of the word is absolutely central to the life of the Christian and to the ministry of the church and to its worship. These things aren't magic, but these are the instruments that God has established, that Christ has established, which the Spirit has promised to use to accomplish his purposes, to make us alive, to bring us into union with Christ, and then to lead us to maturity. That's right. Use the means that God has given. Paul tells Timothy, continue. He's warning him, uh, I think it's 2 Timothy 4, he's warning him, look, there are going to be difficult times that are coming. He's talking about the future. Future times, there's going to be some difficulties ahead. Here's what you're to do. What do you do in future times and difficult times? Continue. In the things that you have learned and seen in me, that is a strategy for the ages, not just for then. He has in view the future. What can we depend upon? We can depend upon the apostolic form of ministry, which is the ministry of the word, read, preached, sung, prayed, visible word administered in the sacraments. Preach the word in season, but when it's out of season, well, maybe go to plan B and do something more exciting. (laughs) It's a huge mistake. (laughs) Tape a $5 bill under the pew and see who shows up. Oh, we're just overrun (laughs) with gimmicks, aren't we? We're just uh, awash in gimmickry. What do we do then? How, how, as we we begin to bring this discussion to a close, how do we, particularly with Reformed churches where you and I both serve, how do we help our churches begin to move back toward that place that uh, we confess in the Westminster Confession that we agree Scripture teaches. How do we get our churches back to where they need to be? What's the first step? I don't want to be uh, flippant about this, but I think the proof of the pie is in the eating. I do. Well, I was convinced about psalm singing by singing psalms. I thought, mm. you know what? This is the greatest idea I ever heard of. Why did anybody <laughs> sing? I was in Scotland, and there, there, there I was sitting in church, and there was all 150 psalms. And I said, where have people been hiding this my yeah. whole life? I went to church as a college student at Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur is the pastor. And he was working his way word by word through a passage. I walked out of the church. I said, you know what? That is what the preacher is supposed to do. He's supposed to explain the Bible, not tell stories, not entertain us. Uh, not give book reviews or movie reviews. He's supposed to explain the Bible. I was in England and attended a church, and uh, the preacher started to pray, and I mean, he took us right up uh, into the heavenly realms. And I thought, you know what? That's what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is not just a little thing we put at the end of uh, the sermon and before the offering is collected. There is a communion with God in prayer, and and the minister is to take the congregation with him. So that's, uh, that's what I mean. And, and, and I mentioned earlier that sitting in church and hearing Isaiah being read, yeah. well, well read, it was riveting. 
powerful. It's the Word of God, and you see the, the power of it when it's simply allowed to, to be That's and right. do what it is. So I would say, of course, all of this can be poorly done. You can read poorly. You can preach poorly. You can pray poorly. You can sing poorly. Don't you think people have to realize that there's a problem? I mean, isn't it the case that when you saw these things done properly and when you were exposed to them for the first time, like seeing a Psalter, a collection of, of songs that God the Holy Spirit gave to his congregation to sing, you began to realize, well, wait a minute, there's a discrepancy between what I'm seeing here and what I have known up to this point. And so we call that conviction, don't we? That well, yeah, there's something not right here. I would call these self-authenticating experiences. Every one of them had that response for me of that's exactly what we should be doing. Yeah. It, they, they were self-testifying. It was To me, it was obvious this is what the church was meant to do. And it wasn't just because it produced a certain experience in you, because there are a lot of things that produce experiences. These things had the marks of truth in them because they, they resonated with what you knew the Scriptures to teach. Right. I wasn't coming to church in a vacuum. Yeah. I, I'd been raised in the church, and I'd heard lots of preaching and been in lots of service. I've been in church every Sunday my whole life, Sunday morning and Sunday night. So I had some background I was bringing to me, but when I heard expository preaching, I knew that's that's really what the preacher's supposed to do. When I heard that kind of prayer, I realized, you know what? We don't do any praying in the American church. My churches, they were good churches too. No, there wasn't any prayer. No intercessory prayer, no pleading for souls and heart pleading for sanctification. Yeah. The, the, the songs that I grew up singing, they were just silly. Did Most of them were just plain silly. And here we, here we were singing the 23rd Psalm, you know, and all that richness, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. All I can say is that it, it was the, a moment of realization that, you know, these are the things that God has given to the church that we're to focus on, that we're to be devoted to, and we're neglecting every one of them. And is, is, it any, is it any wonder that the church is in the kind of shape it is? Well, we're grateful for the work that you have done on worship to draw our attention back to some of the resources that we have, chiefly the Word of God, but also other resources that the churches have developed over the centuries to begin to focus us back on the most important things, the centrality of the Word, the pattern of Reformed worship, the, the regulative principle of Reformed worship, was re, which is really just the way of talking about the Second Commandment. And, and so what I like to say is, you know, we're only one Sunday away from Reformation. Probably won't happen in one Sunday. It, as Daryl says, and as I think any historian knows, you know, and you mentioned uh, Calvin's uh, liturgy from the early 1540s. We're a long ways away from that liturgy, and it, it took us a long time to get where we are. But if we become conscious of the discrepancy between what the Word teaches you know, and what we confess on the one hand and what we're doing on the other, once we have that consciousness and once we know what we could do, and that there are resources out there that you've provided and others have provided, there really could be a reformation in worship. Well, there was about a seven or eight-year period in France where the Reformed churches went from a half a dozen to a couple thousand. And what you had happening there was whole congregations being converted. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I think would have to happen today. We're not going to get very far. We're happy about it, but we're not going to get very far with just isolated individuals here and there coming to Reformed convictions. There's going to need to be, again, uh, whole congregations being converted to the Reformed faith and to the worship of the Reformed Church. Yeah, so maybe this has to start at the congregational level 
and and maybe not so much with the elders and pastors. Do you see any encouraging signs that there is a growing interest in recovering a, a more biblical and confessional approach to worship? Oh, I think that there's a lot of interest here and there. I think, it, the, you know, here, there, here, there, we hear from people, but we're not seeing a groundswell. We're seeing just the, the beginnings of interest in a lot of different places, but it, it has not yet really begun to feel the weight of that. There's, it's not widespread, and there's not a large-scale movement yet. All right, well, we have something for which to pray, then. That's right. Well, thanks, Terry, for your time, and, and we're grateful for your work on behalf of Westminster Seminary, California. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.